0: Good morning to you all. I I understand that uh, most of you are viewing from elsewhere. And and that's great. And Mark, I understand you're in Costa Rica. Um, Thank you for taking the time to join us from there. I, uh, I do want to say thank you to you, Mark, for extending to me the invitation to be here and to take part with so many. Uh, in this uh, community chapel series on uh, on characters that have impacted our our lives and given us an understanding of faith so it 's a privilege to uh, participate uh, and i'm grateful for the opportunity and I am pleased to be part of this current chapel series on biblical and post biblical characters the reason i 'm pleased is because it 's given all of us an opportunity to think about the factors and the influences and the people that have affected and given noticeable shape and form to what we understand to be Christian faith. And too often, uh, as my friend James Enns has said in the past, we have a tendency to ignore or at best downplay the contributions of our spiritual ancestors. And so the opportunity of being um, introduced or reintroduced, as the case may be, to so many of these people has provided us with an occasion to think about that interface between their faith and ours, because regardless of whether we realize it or not, Uh, We, who live out our faith today, are the progeny of people and times and circumstances long past. It is their struggles, it's their thinking, it's their theological formulations, and it's their victories in faith that have contributed in large or small ways to what we have come to understand as Christian faith. And even though some of them may have lost their spiritual bearings along the way, countless others uh, whom I believe contribute to that great cloud of witnesses spoken of in Hebrews 12 have bequeathed uh, a meaningful inheritance, showing us what it looks like when real people work out in real time that real faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And these saints have all helped to shape who we are as Christians today. And so then, in Christ, our fellowship is with the dead as well as the living. And so it's with that understanding that I'm, I'm pleased to introduce to you this morning a young lady by the name of Macrina. Macrina, whose entire life was lived within the parameters of the 4th century, came from the Christian East. That's not a reference to the greater Toronto area. That is in fact a reference to the Christian world that was centered in Constantinople, long capital of the Byzantine Empire. And so today in talking about Macrina, we would say she grew up in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Born in Caesarea, uh, in the province of Cappadocia, that today is the modern city of Kasari, Turkey, and it's, if you look at the map, it's almost dead center in that country. Um, she was born in 324, or 329, depends on who you read, to Saint Amelia and Basil the Elder, She was the eldest of ten siblings, which included St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory of Nyssa. Both of these men were prominent patristic theologians in their day. And she was also the elder sister to uh, Nocratius, the famous Christian jurist. She was named Macrina, often referred to as the Younger, after her paternal grandmother. Macrina the Elder, who is known to have suffered under the persecution of Emperor Maximus Galerius. And similarly, her mother, Amelia, was the orphan daughter of a Christian nobleman. So what this tells us about Macrina is that she was nurtured in a deeply devout Christian family that went back at least two generations. Now the spiritual and intellectual dynamics of that nurturing came to Macrina through her mother, Amelia, who taught her small daughter, and here I'm quoting her brother Gregory, parts of inspired scripture as you would think were incomprehensible to young children. But these were the subject of young Macrina's study, and particularly the wisdom of Solomon, and those parts of it especially which have an ethical bearing, as well as the Psalter, which became to the young girl her constant companion that never deserted her. I think it's important to point out at this time that Macrina lived during the golden age of the early church. I say golden age, because up until the downfall of the Roman Empire late in the fifth century, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church at large, Latin and Greek, had enjoyed the unanimity of five centuries, four ecumenical councils, three creeds, and one homogenous faith. This was the ideal of Christendom. And never in the last 1500 years has the church enjoyed or thrived under that kind of unity. But this age of unmatched Christian solidarity, so very long ago, was Macrina's world. So before hearing something of the message of Macrina's life, perhaps it would be beneficial to begin by listening to the message that resonates from the era in which she lived. As we have already taken time to notice, The early Christian era was peculiar in its ecclesiastical unity. And since the last 1500 years has failed to see that kind of unity, we might well ask ourselves, is that scriptural mandate, is that biblical New Testament vision even possible anymore? Is Jesus' prayer for unity in John chapter 17, which I think he still continues to pray, Is that even attainable? Well, apart from the return of the Lord Jesus, it seems doubtful. But perhaps not all is lost. The message coming to us from that early era is, real Christian unity is possible. It really is even amidst the most socially perilous, culturally diverse, or theologically challenging circumstances. So perhaps one way to move toward this divine telos is for the various factions within the contemporary church, and here I'm thinking of us Protestants with our 40,000 distinct and identifiable denominations, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, to begin by coming together, not simply to say sorry, and then go on maintaining some sort of ecclesiastical partisanship, but to actually repent for those grievous actions and attitudes and words that have caused so much dissension, mistrust, And harm to the cause of Christ in this world and could it be could it be that it is your generation that is poised on the cusp of that great movement of God to heal his church so that we in turn may be reunited in our divine task of working together in the Holy Spirit as the church militant to reclaim this world for the Lord Jesus Now as a young lady, probably about 12 or 13 years old, Macrina was betrothed to a pious young man. But with his premature death, Macrina not wanting to be unfaithful to the memory of her betrothed, chose rather to lead an ascetic life. Though many others sought her hand in marriage, and I understand it's because they were motivated by her exceptional beauty, She refused, choosing rather the life of virginity. In his biography, The Life of Macrina, Saint Gregory of Nyssa, her younger brother, whom we shall meet just a little bit later, wrote, she thought it absurd and unlawful not to be faithful to the marriage that had been arranged since in the nature of things there was but one marriage, as there is one birth and one death. She persisted that the man who had been linked to her by her parents' arrangement was not dead, but that she considered him who lived to God, thanks to the hope of the resurrection, to be absent only, not dead. Therefore it was wrong not to keep faith with the bridegroom who was merely away. Interesting. I think the message coming to us from this episode in Macrina's life is not, (laughs) please, please hear me, is not to encourage ascetic virginity or even a radical monogamy in which young widows never remarry. It's not what I'm promoting. And while these extraordinary conditions may be possible for some, they are not here being promoted as normative for all. But I do think, I do think it would be beneficial to apprehend a fresh and greater appreciation for the biblical and historical emphasis on the reality that does currently exist and function on the other side of the grave. So in Macrina's mind, the logic was quite simple. If she had been faithful to this young man while he was living in this life, why would she be unfaithful to him now while he was alive in christ living in the life to come so as christians if we believe in this otherworldly reality as jesus articulated it in john chapter 11 particularly verse 25 and 26, then to what extent is our temporal existence actually governed by that greater supratemporal actuality? That is to say, how are the decisions we make in this transitory life informed and influenced and effected by what we believe by way of conviction about the life to come? I think Macrina shows us that it is possible to reorient our thinking so as to prioritize our lives differently in order to pursue living, perhaps in a more dedicated way, the resurrected life here and now. Simply put, learning to live with eternity in view is a Christian discipline not everyone embraces equally. It's also worth noting that by her strength of character, Macrina exercised a deep influence on her brothers. I think that influence was seen most dramatically in winning Basel from a promising secular career to the Christian priesthood. In 351, he left the family home in Cappadocia and went to the university in Athens to study philosophy and rhetoric, only to return home a few years later His brother recalls, excessively puffed up by his rhetorical abilities and disdainful of all great reputations, considering himself better than the leading men in the district. That's Byzantine Greek for he was an airhead. And as if to prove his claim, Basel did come home where he taught rhetoric with noticeable success. But calling him out, out of his conceited preoccupation with his own wisdom and prestige, Macrina bluntly told him that he had, and I quote, become vain, and that he would do well in quoting fewer pagan authors and following more the advice of Christian ones. So in time, Basil was won over to his older sister's greater wisdom, and as a young Christian, in about 357, he was baptized and ordained a reader in the church. For those of us who are part of the Anglican tradition and we're used to lay readers in our church, it, this would be similar but not a, a direct correspondence. Usually our lay readers aren't ordained, but in this case Basel was. After that, he left to visit Palestine, Syria, and Egypt in order to learn more about the ascetic life and eventually he became the great architect and teacher of monasticism in the Greek Christian church. But since it was really his older sister Macrina who had enlivened this in him, it may be fair to say that she was the founder of monasticism in the Christian East. But Basil was not the only one whose young life Macrina influenced for the greater good. The family's youngest child, Peter, later referred to as St. Peter, the Bishop of Sebastia. And for those of you from your biblical studies, this would be the area we know as Samaria uh, in Palestine. Peter's father died about the time he was born, and so he was attended to by Macrina, who, like her mother before her, trained Peter from infancy in holy studies, so as not to give his soul leisure to turn to vain things, and so bolstering his already rigorous curriculum with reading, writing, and prayer. Those skills, like his biblical and theological training, were infused with her own extensive knowledge of the holy scriptures, and in particular, the Psalms of David, writings she had grown to trust. Writings that spoke of a pious and a God-pleasing life. So in addition, like the other siblings before him, she taught young Peter contempt of the world with its injustice, its perversion, and its violence, and the dread of its dangers, a disciplined commitment to prayer and a deep love for the Word of God. So for Peter... Macrina became a father, a teacher, a spiritual guide, a mother, and a giver of good advice. But upon Basil's return from the Middle East, he took up residence in a small hermitage in Pontus by the River Iris. Shortly thereafter, he settled his now widowed mother and Macrina on that same small estate. It was there that she convinced her mother to take monastic vows, and in time there were other young women in the area, her own sisters included, joined her, thus establishing one of the earliest communities for uh, women seeking the monastic life. Why have I told you all this? Well, I told you that to tell you this. I'm confident that by now, it has been sufficiently demonstrated that a significant message emanating from Macrina's life generally is one of sound, biblical influence. This was not some kind of abstract or esoteric coercion. Rather, her impact was concrete resembling very much the injunction given to the church in Hebrews 13 where it tells us, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. That influence which the Christian church still recognizes and promotes as worthy of effort and emulation resulted from at least three identifiable factors. First, there was the providential opportunity to be raised in a strongly devout Christian home, which for her had been honed by the persecutions of the previous generations. Secondly, Macrina's influence resulted from that constant exposure to, a belief in, and a lifelong commitment to the instruction given within Holy Scripture. And thirdly, her influence resulted from a personal life of thoughtful reflection on how the gospel can actually transform life. And a subsequent willing participation in that process as God granted her opportunity. I hope you caught that these are very similar to the circumstances that many of you have been graced with. And would by God's enabling that you do not shortchange yourself, but rather take full advantage, exercising to good effect these same factors within your own sphere of influence, regardless of whom that might include. And I'm willing to believe this morning that your being here at Prairie College is one way in which you have taken the step in that direction. It was however with the death of their brother Basil in 379 that a younger brother Gregory sought out his sister Macrina looking for a sympathetic and reassuring answer to his concern which was in times of bereavement The mind longs for, it craves a certainty as to the existence of the soul after death. Macrina quickly deduced the heart of Gregory's underlying angst. What alarms and disturbs your mind, she observed, is the thought that the soul, instead of lasting forever, actually ceases with the body's dissolution. Macrina understood that Gregory's concern was, in point of fact, the resurrection. A parenthetical word here on Macrina's brother Gregory. By the time their brother Basil had died, Gregory, who had also been academically trained in rhetoric, had been the Bishop of Nyssa for almost a decade. He was no philosophical or theological novice his question is rooted in a deep concern and understanding for the ways of God. He was, rather, the youngest and perhaps the most intellectually sophisticated of what we call the Cappadocian Fathers. And I think this is evidenced just simply by way of example in that he was the first theologian to interweave firmly the doctrine of the sacraments, into a systematic theology of the Incarnation. And so upon his brother's death, Gregory quickly filled the theological void, remaining the most important theologian in the Christian East until his death in 394. And Macrina's unabridged response to Gregory's inquiry about the resurrection is the basis and content of his masterful book on the soul and the resurrection. The salient point, which I think illustrates this presentation, begins with Macrina reminding her brother of the apostles' words about the duty of not being grieved for them that sleep, because only men without hope have such feelings. So at this point, I think we need to recognize that Macrina is not being heartless or insensitive to the grieving process. Rather, she recognizes that grief without hope. What is hope? Hope is the anticipation of joy. That without hope, people are terror-stricken in the face of the unknown. So she concludes her extensive conversation, she comes to the end of the book. She concludes that conversation with an insightful exposition of St. Paul's answer to the Corinthian question, how are the dead raised up? It seems to me, she says, he gags the mouths of men who display their ignorance and who measure the divine power by their own strength and think that Only so much is possible to God as the human understanding can take in. For the man who asked the apostle, how are the dead raised up? Evidently implies by a species of syllogism that it is impossible when once the body's atoms have been scattered that they should again come in concourse together. Apparently, the whole notion of resurrection was, to their mind, an absurd impossibility. And it was an equally idiotic impossibility to some of the Athenians that we meet in Acts chapter 17 as well. But undaunted, Macrina continues, this conclusion involved seemingly in this artful contrivance of premises the apostle calls folly. Is coming from men who fail to perceive in other parts of the creation, the masterliness of the divine power. Then having dismissed what she earlier called pagan nonsense, she picks up on St. Paul's illustration from the natural world, which echoes Jesus' own teaching in John chapter 12 and verse 24 and perceptively brings to a close her answer to Gregory's concern. Whence do seeds get the bodies that spring up from them? What precedes this springing up? Is it not a death that precedes? For indeed it cannot be supposed that the seed would spring up into a shoot unless it had first been dissolved in the soil to such an extent as to mingle its own qualities with the adjacent moisture and thus be transformed into a root and a shoot and a stalk and an ear with its load of corn. The divine power in the superabundance of omnipotence, she says, does not only restore you that body once dissolved, but makes great and splendid additions to it whereby the human being is furnished in a manner still more magnificent. For the perfection of bodies that arise from that sowing of death is, as the apostle tells us, to consist in corruption and glory and honor and power and everything else that we conjecture is to be seen in God and in his image man as he was made further she says it seems to me that the words of the Apostle in every respect harmonize with our own conception of what the resurrection is that reconstitution of our nature in its original form. And for Macrina, having come out of that Greek world, her thinking was transformed a little bit because what she understood by nature was the totality of the body and the soul. And if we were to listen carefully to those like Macrina, who, though dead, continue to speak down through the centuries of Christian thought. We would hear them still, albeit in the words of others today, like Jürgen Moltmann, when he tells us that resurrection is not a return to mortal life by way of natural reanimation. Resurrection is an eschatologically determined happening the raising of a dead person into the eternal life of the new creation, and the transformation of the natural mortal body into the body of God's glory interpenetrated by his Holy Spirit. Thus, one result of such a transformation is that the hostility between the body and the soul, spirit and matter, is vanquished And there is a full and complete reconciliation that takes place in the human person. If this were not so, then there would be no real or lasting resurrection the way the scriptures speak of it. And as a result of that kind of erudite and perceptive exchange, Gregory best chronicles Macrina's influence and competence as a theologian when he refers to her as the teacher. His affectionate moniker affirms that the early church recognized and promoted a rich heritage of faithful women to the extent that among the fathers of the early church there are also mothers. So, You young women who are here with me today, or out there in cyberspace, let me encourage you this morning with Macrina's example. For the benefit of the church and those who come after you, seeing to the clarity or the bolstering of their own faith, do not be afraid to pursue a career in biblical studies or theology the gracious endowments of God the Holy Spirit which surely include the intellect so as to apprehend in some fashion his own infinite intellect these gifts are not gender specific and so you too have the opportunity to enter that world for the building up of God's people in the generations that are yet to come So having come to the monastery on the iris to visit Macrina, Gregory found her in very poor physical health. He visited with her for a time, but toward dusk on the next day, Macrina, consumed by fever, approached her end, discerning, as it were, the beauty of Christ. Gregory recalls, she whispered a prayer. And we need not doubt that it reached God and that she too was hearing his voice. And thus she prayed. You, O Lord, have freed us from the fear of death. You have made the end of this life the beginning to us of true life. For a season you rest our bodies in sleep and awaken them again at the last trumpet. You give our earth, which you fashioned with your hand, to the earth to keep it in safety. One day you will take again what you have given, transfiguring it with immortality and grace, our mortal and unsightly remains. You've saved us from the curse and from sin, having become both for our sakes. You have shown us the way of resurrection, having broken the gates of hell and brought to naught him who had the power of death, the devil. You've given a sign to those who fear you in the symbol of the Holy Cross to destroy the adversary and to save our life. O God eternal, to whom I have dedicated both my flesh and my soul. Remember me in your kingdom, because I too was crucified with you, having nailed my flesh to the cross. May my soul be received into your hands, spotless and undefiled, as an offering before you. At the conclusion of her prayer, Gregory tells us, she drew a deep breath and closed her life and her prayer together. She died on 19 July, 380, and to this day, she remains a prominent saint in the Roman Catholic, Eastern Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox churches. And as is the custom, she is celebrated on the day of her death, July 19. So I'd like to invite you this morning to stand and to pray with me as we bring our time to a close this morning. O God, our Heavenly Father, who in your Son, Jesus Christ, has given us a true faith and a sure and lively hope, we praise and magnify your holy name for all your servants who have finished their course in your faith and fear. And we humbly ask you that, having been encouraged by their example and strengthened by their fellowship, that we too may be found worthy to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And This we ask through the merits of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever, world without end. Amen. Thank you for your attention this morning. It's been wonderful to be with you. Enjoy the rest of your day. You are dismissed.